This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, and Christopher Howes, uh, the Telegraph assistant editor and one of The Spectator's regular stuntmen as well. Uh, now, we'll start by talking about this uh, book that all of Westminster's talking about, which is Nadine Dorries' The Plot. Christopher, you've had the honour of reviewing it for HM Daily Telegraph. What did you uh, make of this book? It's very difficult to make it out at all, actually. It's very much like a, a dream recollected in waking hours. And for a bit, it seems to make sense. But then in recollection, it's overheated and a peculiar, illogical, nebulous thing. And it comes in slices from informants with made-up names to protect them. And... You think you're going to learn something new, but you find it's just another slice of the same thing, which is to say that that Boris Johnson was brought down not by any political mistakes or or by events, but by a plot of something she calls the movement, which she says has been going for 40 years and chooses who's going to be prime minister and who's going to be MPs and so on. And it's all supposed to be put together by this mysterious man she calls Dr. No, and I hadn't been able to work out who that could possibly be. Fraser, I mean, before I turn to you, I should say, well, congratulations. As editor of The Spectator, we've been running the Conservative Party for 30 years, which is uh, a revelation to us. Um, what do you make of Nadine Dory's claims in this book? Look, to give the book its credit, it is certainly right to say that politics is quite tribal. People tend to come into power and bring people they can trust. And now, quite often in politics, this can be their friends, friends from old. Let's remember that James Forsyth, late of his parish, has known Rishi since they were at school together. When David Cameron came into power, he had his chumocracy. People who he'd known, people he would organise the Oxford ball with, would end up in the Conservative Party headquarters. But I'm afraid to say that clannishness isn't unique to the Tory party. It's just to do with politics in general. People do want random people they can trust. And quite often, they, they can be people who they knew before they entered politics. But where I do, I mean, it, The Spectator does get several mentions in the book. Um, and one of them is when they talk about Kemi Bednach. Now, here, and I'll just read from the book here. Um, with Kemi, you just need to, I'm trying to do Nadine Doris's voice here. With Kemi, you just need to join up the dots. The Spectator has written numerous articles about her. I mean, articles with titles like In Praise of Kemi Bednach. And yet I can't listen to her without hearing Minira's voice, etc. Et now, just I'll give you a little insider's um, insight here on all of those pro-Kemi articles, because we did run a lot of them. Now, when the leadership race happened, we it was quite interesting. I didn't really have a favourite. James was probably leading, leaning towards Rishi. Um, and, uh, James Forsyth, yes. to be clear. <laughs> uh, uh, I, but I wanted us to basically give every candidate a fair crack at the whip, you know. If we'd run slagging off Penny Morden, we'd run one praising her as well, to look at it from all angles. And this became really unmanageable when columnist after columnist wrote in in praise of Kemi Badenich. And at one stage, I had to give an, a, a, an edict to Tom Goodenough, online editor, saying, right, Tom, enough, we just we can't run any more pro-Kemi pieces. He said, but Fraser, we just keep coming, Patrick O'Flynn, Rod Little, the, the old lover. So it's, you know, the way it, it might seem to the outsider is if there was somebody commissioning 
the as if there was a plot or the what did you call it the brotherhood or the movement the movement right sitting here nominating you know this sort of this Nigerian queen over the water to come and and take the throne but in practice Kemi's politics resonate with a lot of the people who write for the Spectator so in there what seems to be a stitch up can be explained more by simply the fact that the issues she highlights tend to be the things that that Rod that that, that Patrick that a lot of our writers do care about and the irony is here that the editor here was trying to do a plot against Kemi, as it were, by by banning any more articles in praise of her. But that quite often is just is just the way it goes. Now there now and again there are plots to remove um, party leaders. The Tory party is quite good at regicide. But when it comes to Boris Johnson's downfall, everybody remembers what happened. There were so many resignations from his government that he literally couldn't find enough MPs to serve in his government. Now, we all remember that because we remember the, the, the resignations coming in their dozens. And we remember people who education secretary for one day, etc. So it is, it's difficult to rewrite that history as to say there was a plot what there was was a mass rebellion as Boris Johnson became the first prime minister in British history to stem from power because he couldn't find enough members of his party to fill the places in his government. So her book is based on a false premise. But the one scandal that she has referred to is that there was an MP who um, gave a date rape drug to a young woman who woke up in a country hotel and that the Tory party was aware of somebody else who was a victim of this MP's um, malfeasant behaviour and was basically covering up her bills in the Priory. Now that is a serious allegation, though I have to say you wonder why she'd wait for a book to make this public because if this was happening, this was... Uh, a scandal that ought to have been um, revealed by anybody who who knew it. So that is a genuinely serious issue. Although I do wonder why she why she waited until now to come forward. Uh, Christopher, I mean, Fraser's there talking about perhaps the lack of kind of you know journalistic merit, but was there not sort of artistic merit to it? So I mean, literary merit, and you know, obviously, Nadine Dory is a very successful fiction writer. Do you think perhaps there's something to be said for the book in terms of entertainment value? Well, it didn't entertain me very much, but perhaps I'm a bit fussy. Um, I read Do- uh, Nadine Doris's first novel, and I thought it would be her last novel, but she's gone on from success to success. Uh, she blames me, actually, for having said that it was the worst novel I'd ever read. Now, that's not true. I said it was the worst novel I'd read in ten years, which is not the same thing. Uh, if, if it's any consolation... A, a worse novel is by Goethe, actually. It's called Elective Affinities. And I really think if you can read that, you can read anything. What is peculiar is the marrying of strange susceptibilities to... Well, she's very keen on shortbread biscuits and log fires at Hartford Street and Royal Dalton... China, which is supposed to be very good, apparently. I thought they made lavatories. But anyway, this is all the sort of scene in which she talks to her informants. And it's really a book about writing a book. And it it doesn't really have any narrative development or plot, as it were. And then there's a a sort of um, morning-after scene with her and Boris Johnson in the countryside, looking back and saying very much what the book's been saying all along, which was it was a plot by them people, the movement. Well, it it baffles me. 
On that matter of uh, constitutional rectitude, uh, which she seems to be embracing, actually invokes Ferdinand Mount, who's a good political writer, as we all know, and used to write The Spectator, and he does know about the Constitution. And I think it's a shame that he should be dragged into it, because Nadine Dorries left the House of Commons to appear on television for a number of weeks in the jungle, and she was suspended uh, from the party whip for doing so. And then in her later days, uh, she did go to the House of Commons for weeks and weeks. Now, I can't see what principles she was following there. I, I can't see either that it did much harm, because if I were her constituents, I wouldn't find any advantage in having Nadine Doris in the Commons. What this does do is add to the overall narrative of Tory disarray. And of course, she's not an MP right now, but your average person listening to the news will you know, pick it up. For example, we have Sue Alec Braverman, who is um, writing things in defiance of Number 10's authority. We've got Nadine Dorries, who here is attacking Rishi for, for killing off um, Boris Johnson. We then have got the COVID inquiry revealing the, um, the dirty laundry of all sorts of people inside. So what this adds to is a general sense of Tory disaggregation. In fact, it also looks like this sounds very much like a Tory war having started. This is the kind of discussions you'd expect after a pretty bad election defeat, um, except the election is about a year away, but the reckoning seems to have started already. Now, Sunak always wanted to move on from this. His great hope was that he could just close the chapter on Boris Johnson and the associated characters. Nadine Doris was the one person he didn't make peace with. He gave various cabinet jobs to Andrew Mitchell to assuage the Cameroons, etc. You know, he, we wanted to, he wanted to, a peace offering to, from all the Tory tribes. But Nadine Doris, who wanted to go to the House of Lords, he thought that was something which, in all good conscience, he couldn't do. Mm. Um, did she really deserve to be a lifelong legislator? What really were her credentials for this job? And I don't think that um, even those who sympathise with, with her, as, as I have done quite a lot over the years, could argue that really she fit, she fit that criteria for somebody who deserved to be scrutinising legislation, making in, in, interesting and provocative points. Being in the House of Lords is a really important um, decision. And one of the things I deplore is the way that this honour is handed out to people who plainly don't deserve it, who've got no experience of being able to scrutinise legislation. The House of Lords have run properly. It can be the great bulwark against the Commons' oversights. So, of course, Sunak wasn't going to send her there, and nor should he have done, and she retaliated in this way. He knew that she would come for him, so he knew that she would be a ghost from the past. But I don't think he'd quite worked out that she'd be coming at him at the same time as his Home Secretary would be coming at him, as the other ghosts of the past would be unleashed by opening the coffin of the COVID inquiry, where all of these emails were being read out by these overexcited KCs. So I think this is the political importance of this. It just adds to the idea of Conservative Party being the party of chaos. It's odd that the cast of villains in this book, uh, with their code names of the Wolf and the Dark Lord, uh, uh, Michael Gove, which is a transparent code name, uh, who is really the most wicked of them all, they really don't seem to match up to the baddies of yesteryear. If you think of Lord Kagan in, in Harold Wilson's administration or Tom Dryberg, who is doing mm. all sorts of peculiar things, not only sexual but also uh, political with Russia, or, or years before that, Maundy Gregory handing out 
honours for payment on behalf of Lloyd George. The the present gang that uh, is is summoned up of people that I really didn't didn't know about. D- d- Dougie Smith and people like that. Well, I mean, I don't think they, they... They don't quite make it. Are you saying the villains of the current day are a decline of the old? They're not so villainous, no. And they're not even pantomime villains. I think the, these are the sort of wonks that you have wandering around. And I know that Dominic Cummings is a bit of a peculiar person, but it's just a, a little bit of a, a pinball in the machine. I don't think it's behind everything. There is a sort of... There There are people's personal connections, there are people's political affiliations. Now, when Starmer comes into power, then the um, the march of the stormtroopers, as Katie Bowles brilliantly called them, will mean a certain class of, of relatively boring machine politician is going to march into number 10. With the Corbynistas, of course, they were all united by their own um, shared belief in socialist revolution. Uh, the Cameroons were all united by their hatred of the right wing of the Tory party, etc. It was always thus. So I'm afraid to say, for Nadine Doris, if she's profiling a tribe, then she's going to have several books left within her because these tribes are going to keep shaping our politics. And as a journalist, I can... Christopher, we can only hope for interesting tribes, can't we? We need characters to write about. Well, I wouldn't mind a few more, yes. We're uh, running low on them right now. We are, and I think it's a great enemy of democracy and freedom to have conventional characters wandering around with briefcases. And can you imagine this nuclear winter of a Stormer government descending on us? I expect there'll be events to brighten it up. Well, here's hoping. Well, we wait to see if this book, which Christopher says reading is like a, a dream, will give Rishi Sunak any nightmares. Thank you very much, Christopher. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. <laughs> <laughs>